I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. On this episode, we explore the Free Exercise Clause and the future of religious exemptions. Last week, the Supreme Court denied certiorari in a case called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And that was a case brought by Joseph Kennedy, who's a high school football coach who was fired when he refused to stop praying at the 50-yard line after games. Justice Samuel Alito wrote a really interesting concurring opinion in the cert denial in which he suggested he and other justices might be open to overturning a case called Employment Division versus Smith, which we'll explore in detail on this podcast. And joining us to cast light on this crucially important question of the future of religious exemptions under the Free Exercise Clause are two of America's leading experts in the Constitution and the First Amendment religion clauses. Stephanie Barclay is associate professor at BYU Law School, where she teaches the First Amendment, and she is of counsel at the Beckett Fund, an organization dedicated to defending the free exercise of religion. She's litigated many free exercise cases at the trial and appellate level. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And Richard Katsky is the legal director at Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, where he litigates First Amendment Establishment Clause, Free Exercise Clause, and Free Speech cases. He also teaches at the American University Washington College of Law, and he wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Bremington in the Ninth Circuit. Richard, it's wonderful to have you with us. Really nice to be here, Jeff. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, let us begin with the Kennedy and Bremerton case. Stephanie, why don't you begin by telling us the facts of this case? Why was Joseph Kennedy uh, praying on the 50-yard line? Uh, what did he think he was trying to accomplish? And, and what did the lower court said when it required him to stop praying? Yeah, so this is a case where the coach, after the game was over, would pray silently on the 50-yard line. And uh, and what happened was the superintendent essentially gave him a letter that was threatening him to lose his position if he continued to engage in his religious practices. And uh, the letter is a little bit confusing as to why, but the coach did, again, say a prayer after the game silently on the 50-yard line. And, uh, and so he ultimately lost his job because he was engaging in his own uh, as he described his private religious practice. Richard, anything to add to the facts of the case? I, I gather he may have uh, prayed in different places at different times, and what light can you cast on uh, his conception of his prayer and what the lower court said? Sure. Um, so the the history of, of what was going on here matters a whole lot. For something like eight years, uh, Kennedy, who was an assistant uh, football coach, had held prayers um, on the on the field before games and had given little religious homilies, religious uh, motivational speeches to the students in a prayer circle after the games on the 50-yard line. Uh, when the school district told him that he was supposed to stop that, he first did, and then he decided that he wasn't going to do that anymore. So he went out onto the 50-yard line after the game. He was surrounded by students uh, who were all participating with him and led prayers. 
And so the school school district said, look, you kept telling him, look, we respect your religious practice. You can pray. Uh, you We can, we can uh, accommodate your religion in all different sorts of ways and really tried to bend over backwards to do that. But he insisted that the only, the only thing acceptable to him was to be on the 50 yard line immediately after the game in the, in the closing game ceremonies, uh, when he's surrounded by the students. And in fact, if you look at the brief in opposition filed by the school district, the, the opposition to the cert petition, you'll see at the back a photo, um, that shows that what he was doing is nothing like praying by himself. This isn't individual religious practice. This was, this was, showing the students what mattered to him so that they would go along, and they did. Um, and that was what the school district said he couldn't do. It didn't say he couldn't pray. It didn't say he couldn't practice his faith. It didn't say that religion was banned from the schools. It said that he couldn't be doing something that has the effect of coercing students to participate. And and when the school district was taken to court, the courts, the lower courts all said that the school district gets to ensure that its employees are uh, watching the kids, monitoring the kids appropriately, and, uh, and abiding by the law. Stephanie, Justice Alito focused on how relevant the backstory was. Justice Alito said in his uh, opinion, instead of attempting to pinpoint what the petitioner was likely to be able to prove regarding the reason or reasons for his loss of employment, the Ninth Circuit recounted all of petitioner's prayer-related activities over the course of several years. And Justice Alito added that the court uh, should have decided what the petitioner was likely to be able to show regarding the reason or reasons for his loss of employment. What was Justice Alito getting at, and uh, uh, how is this relevant to the constitutional issue? Yeah, what Justice Alito is honing in on here is that there were sort of two different bases that were given by the school as far as why the, the coach lost his job. One was that he was essentially neglecting his responsibility to, to take care of the players and to supervise them after the game. And the other was that they, they found his religious expression unacceptable. And the problem, Justice Alito said, for the Supreme Court to take this case is they, they really needed to know which one was it. Because if, if the reason that he lost his job had more to do with a dereliction of duty, then that doesn't raise the constitutional questions in the same way. But if it would have been uh, clearer that the primary basis for him losing his job was based on his engaging in that religious expression, then Justice Alito said that would have uh, raised much graver concerns about his First Amendment rights at issue. And Justice Alito said, if I was the appellate court and I had to had mandatory jurisdiction over this case, I would vacate what the district court did and send this back and tell the court go be clearer and make findings about which was the actual basis. Uh, but since I'm not, it, that's not what the purposes of the Supreme Court, we, we only take a very limited uh, proportion of cases. This just isn't a good vehicle for us to decide this question. But he did go on to express some real concerns about the way the Ninth Circuit just had decided the case. And I'm happy to address those at some point too. As you say, Justice Alito um, did suggest that if the likely reason was simply Kennedy's neglect of his duties, his free speech claim would fail. On the other hand, the claim would have greater weight if Kennedy could have established that he wasn't really on duty or that he was on duty only in the sense that his workday had not ended. And one of the cases that was central to that second question 
is a case called the Garcetti case in which the Supreme Court held that when public employees are speaking in a public capacity, their speech is not protected. And Justice Alito said that according to the Ninth Circuit's reading of this Garcetti case, which was from 2006, public school teachers and coaches can be fired if they engage in any expression the school doesn't like when they're on duty. And the Ninth Circuit thinks the teachers and coaches are always on duty. Um, can you, uh, Richard, give us a sense of what Garcetti held and how uh, the lower court applied it in this case and whether you think it correctly applied Garcetti? So the Garcetti decision involved an assistant district attorney in Los Angeles who uh, wrote a memo um, to the district attorney uh, criticizing how the office was uh, was applying the law. He said, hey, we're doing something wrong here um, and, uh, and we should fix it. Uh, he was fired for that conduct. The case went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court held that when you are engaged in the performance of your job duties, um, you as a public employee don't have free speech rights. Um, not that you don't have free speech rights at all, but that when you are employed to perform a job as a government employee, you're supposed to do your job. And if you're not doing it, um, then then you can be let go. Now, how that uh, applies to this situation is, is kind of interesting. The courts of appeals uh, in a whole string of cases have looked at Garcetti in the context of schools, uh, just like they did here. And what they said is that you're supposed to look to see whether a teacher, a coach is uh, is performing the duties of the job, is really is really acting as a teacher or a coach, and if so, the school gets to regulate uh, the conduct uh, of the teacher. Um, the reason for that is, if you think about it, um, actually there are there are cases from the third, including from the Third Circuit, when Justice Alito was the, on that court and wrote a decision saying that um, saying that the institution decides what's taught. Um, so that if, for instance, you have a math teacher who decides that he really wants to teach poetry instead of math, the school district gets to say, no, you have to teach math, and if you and if you don't want to do that, then you can't be employed here as a math teacher. What went on here was the Ninth Circuit looked at the looked at the school's regulation of uh, Coach Kennedy's conduct and said, Look, you have you have to um, you have to do the job of being a coach and a school teacher, which means that you are uh, in the presence of students. You're monitoring and supervising students. They're looking to you as a role model, and you're in the middle of this of this special. Uh, special circumstance on the 50-yard line immediately after the game when the kids are all supposed to shake hands with the other team uh, and and close down the uh, the ceremonies for the game. You're on the field only because you can because you're the coach. That's the only reason you can be there, and you're in charge of the kids. And they see that you're having this this prayer on the 50-yard line that you've done for many years. And so they they know that it's what you want as the coach, and you should go along. Coaches get to control your game time. Uh, they get to, or whether you ride the bench, and the and the and the court was well aware of that problem. I also, if I could, wanted to say one other thing about justice. Uh, go back to what Justice uh, Alito said about the Ninth Circuit's opinion, because I think 
respectfully, he misread that opinion. The court goes through and recounts um, all of uh, uh, Coach Kennedy's prayers over time, um, not to say that we're holding him responsible for all those things, but to say two things. One is um, we're going to look at what he was actually doing, which was this this practice of having prayers on the 50-yard line. And the other was when it pointed to the fact that he had prayers silently in the stands during the time when he was uh, on administrative leave, the court was saying the school district didn't have any problem with that, allowed him to do that, didn't interfere, didn't try to punish him for it, didn't tell him anything about that. Um, and that that was the school yet again respecting his his beliefs. So the school was understanding the difference between on-duty conduct by a coach supervising kids and conduct that isn't in that same context. The, the Ninth Circuit took that seriously, and I think that's what Garcetti is supposed to be all about. So, Stephanie, Justice Alito did suggest that the Ninth Circuit had read Garcetti too broadly. He said under its interpretation of Garcetti, if teachers are visible to the student while eating lunch, they can be ordered not to engage in any demonstrative conduct of a religious nature. A school could regulate what teachers do during a period when they're not teaching by preventing them from reading things that could be spotted by students. The court has never read Garcetti to go that far, and if the Ninth Circuit continues to apply its interpretation of Garcetti in future cases involving public school teachers or coaches, review by this court may be appropriate. Richard says that on the facts, that's wrong because here the coach was allowed to pray in the stands, but just not on the 50-yard line. So, you know, more thoughts on the facts. And, and also, do you believe that the Ninth Circuit read Garcetti too broadly? And how do you think it is correctly read? I do think that the Ninth Circuit is reading Garcetti too broadly. And, and one thing that the coach's attorneys point out in their reply brief is this isn't the first time that the Ninth Circuit has read Garcetti in this way. So it's not even as though like, this is the only case where they've done that. Uh, they have this categorical rule that they have used that's really expanding Garcetti to essentially say that uh, anytime you have a public employee, whenever they're on duty, at all times from the moment they report to work for the moment they depart, and if they're a teacher, then if they're within eyesight of students, then essentially everything they do is essentially something that the school can say that they're on the hook for and that the school can control. And that's a very broad rule and, and one that was, I think, justifiably concerning for a number of justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, and this isn't the only situation where the government has more control than normal over message because it is, it's paying someone to do something. Here we're talking about it in the context of employment, but there's also a line of cases that talk about this same issue in the context of the government buying goods or services. And, and the Supreme Court has said in both contexts that with, if the government is defining the conditions of either the job or the government contract so broadly that it's essentially trying to reach beyond what it's actually paying for, or what's actually within the job duties, and is starting to try and control private behavior of that individual, then, then we've got a real problem. And, uh, and Justice Alito says, if the Ninth Circuit continues to apply Garcetti in this way in future cases involving public school teachers or coaches, then review by this court may be appropriate. And I think you can understand why, because if the rule of the Ninth Circuit really became the rule more broadly, and if it continued to apply it this way, this means that 
a teacher eating lunch at school, uh, if they said a prayer on their lunch, they could be in trouble. Or if a teacher wanted to read the Bible uh, at lunch in school, then then they could lose their job. And I don't think that that's at all what Garcetti was trying to get at. I think it would be a really problematic rule where instead of offering the sort of protections that our Constitution anticipates for both religion and speech, we would be providing special penalties for religious speech for those sorts of employees. Richard, one last beat on the free speech claim in Garcetti. Uh, are you concerned that the Supreme Court might read Garcetti too narrowly uh, to allow for public employees like teachers to engage in religious expression during school hours in ways that you think might raise constitutional issues or not? So the important thing about uh, about that question, the central thing about that question is to get to what Garcetti is supposed to is supposed to be doing. And and I think that the Ninth Circuit was I think it is wrong to say that the Ninth Circuit was uh, imposing an absolute broad rule. The court was really careful to go through and define um, define what Kennedy's job duties were, how he was performing them, and how the prayers on the 50-yard line fit into that. And so, by the way, was the school district, uh, which really did take many, make many, 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 many attempts to accommodate uh, Kennedy's religious practice that he refused and refused and refused because he said, the only place I'm willing to do this is on the 50-yard line immediately after the games surrounded by the students. Um what get what I'm concerned about is um, is is not about Garcetti per se, but about the consideration that public school teachers uh, and public employees have enormous coercive uh, force at their fingertips. When a teacher uh, tells you what you're supposed to do, or even uh, or even just subtly makes uh, makes clear what he or she thinks is important, the students know that they have to go along to get along. That was what was happening here. So when the school district took seriously that when Coach Kennedy is acting as a coach, when he's supervising students, he has to be respectful of the religious beliefs and religious practices of all those students and all those families, it was it was not just dealing with Garcetti, but it was also respecting the fun- fundamental uh, religious freedom rights of students and families. And when you're a public employee, it is your job to do that. You don't get to say, hey, um, I'm going to act in ways that impose my faith on my students because I think it's important or I think it's valuable or it matters to me so it should matter to them. That's up to those students and their families and their own houses of worship. So, Stephanie, uh, Richard raises a whole series of new questions, which is, has the Supreme Court uh, defined coercion too broadly or narrowly? Justice Anthony Kennedy, uh, who recently retired, uh, favored a kind of coercion test about whether or not people were were coerced by their teachers into praying. Uh, Others favored a reasonable observer test. We talked on this podcast about the infamous lemon test, which uh, Justice Scalia has described as a ghoul that keeps rising from the grave at the end of a horror movie. So to what degree is the question Richard has put on the table about how to define constitutional coercion relevant to the future disposition of these cases? I think it's a hugely important question and one that the Supreme Court is actually likely to take up in another case pending before the court right now, and that is uh, an American Legion case. Uh, it's dealing with a Bladensburg Peace Cross 
and we can get into the facts a little bit of that if you want, Jeff. But the bottom line is it's a it's a cross that was originally erected by private groups. Eventually, for safety reasons, the government acquired that property. And so now there's a, a war memorial on government property. And a big question in that case is going to raise how much that coercive uh, test should be relevant or whether lemon is still good law or not. Uh, there are certainly scholars like Professor Michael McConnell who have pointed out that if you look at sort of the historical impetus of the Establishment Clause, there were a number of different characteristics of, of what an established church looked like. And the type of coercion that government exercised with respect to an established church involved things like government actually uh, sending people to jail or fining them or engaging in other really heavy-handed sorts of government coercion. If people didn't uh, attend worship services or comply with or participate in different things that the established church was doing. And Justice Thomas has pointed out before in his uh, opinion in Town of Greece that other sorts of like things like peer pressure, someone merely seeing someone doing a religious thing in a public place fall way, way short of the type of coercive activity that that really gave rise to founders' concerns uh, that, that led them to establish to create the Establishment Clause. Uh, and I do think that we're probably going to see in the near future the Lemon Test face some revision from the Supreme Court because it's offered very little guidance to the lower courts. And uh, as you know, the Lemon Test has three different prongs, but they've, they've been applied in very different ways, and there's really no historical basis for that test. And, and we could very likely see the Supreme Court move in a direction where they're requiring more of the type of coercion uh, to be involved in a case for there to be a real establishment clause violation that, uh, that gave rise to those sorts of concerns to begin with historically. Thank you so much for that. Well, we did um, do a preview podcast on the Bladensburg uh, case, uh, and I'm sure we'll revisit it, and it would be great to have you both back to talk about it. But let me just ask you, Richard, and then we'll turn to the Smith case uh, after this. Um, if the court revisits the Lemon test in the Bladensburg Cross case, what test for coercion do you think is most appropriate under the Establishment Clause? Well, so let me say a couple of things, uh, back up a little bit. Um, the Establishment Clause definitely prohibits religious coercion, but it, it does and has to do more than that as well. Uh, and the Supreme Court has recognized that for 75 years at least. The, the court made clear from the 1950s on that the Free Exercise Clause um, requires a show making a claim under the free exercise clause requires a showing of coercion. The government is pe compelling you to uh, to go to a church that isn't yours, to practice a faith or not practice a faith against the dictates of your conscience, and and the establishment clause does not require coercion. Coercion is sufficient but not necessary to be an establishment clause violation. So what should go into uh, any test of the establishment clause? It should get to the fundamental principles um, that the establishment clause, that the religion clauses together were designed to protect against. This gets back actually to the uh, to the theology of Roger Williams, the Baptist theologian who founded Rhode Island, um, who recognized that 
religious belief is valid and true only if you come to it entirely on your own. Um, when government coerces religious belief or even just gives the slightest nod or a little bit of favoritism or a little bit of goodies to one faith over another, uh, when it shows any kind of favoritism, what that does is to interfere with individuals' exercise of conscience and also distorts and degrades religion by uh, by encouraging clergy and houses of worship and denominations to distort their own doctrine to try to get that government favoritism. The Establishment Clause is about ensuring that uh, that religion is protected from governmental interference, um, and interference can come even when it's done in a way that seems salutary, that seems minimal. So any test of the Establishment Clause really has to take seriously the idea that governmental favoritism, your faith is better than my faith, um, that, that those are never countenanced. And when you put up a big cross and say it's to honor, and I won't delve into because I know I, I know and really enjoyed your previous podcast, it, but um, when the government puts up a giant cross and says, this is how we honor all veterans and war dead, what it's really saying, whether it means to or not, is um, the people who count are Christian war dead, Christian veterans, and those who aren't Christian aren't aren't one of us. They aren't our they aren't our equal citizens. They don't count. Their sacrifices don't matter in the same way. The Establishment Clause is designed to ensure that government never sends that message, so any test that the court puts in place has to respect that fundamental principle. That's how we defend religious liberty for everyone. So, dear We the People listeners, we're about halfway through the podcast, and we've already touched on two clauses of the First Amendment. We began with the free speech clause and talked about the scope of public employees' free speech rights under the Garcetti case. Then we've talked about the Establishment Clause and the scope of the ability not to be coerced uh, by government action uh, in cases including the Lemon case. And now we turn to the Free Exercise Clause, which was the original thing that I promised at the beginning of the podcast. In his concurring opinion, Justice Alito uh, had a really significant sentence. He said, in Employment Division versus Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith, a 1990 case. The court drastically cut back on the protection provided by the Free Exercise Clause. And he says, in this case, we've not been asked to revisit those decisions. Uh, Stephanie, what did Smith say? And why has it become contested uh, among both uh, conservative justices like Justice Alito and even liberal justices like Justice Breyer. And what should we make of that very suggestive sentence by Justice Alito about revisiting Smith? Yeah, this is the key and really interesting question. Before I tell you about Smith, I'm just going to give a little bit of a background about some of the Supreme Court cases leading up to Smith. Uh, in the early stages of our nation's history, right, right before World War II, I should say the early stages of, of developing sort of our constitutional framework for strict scrutiny and things like that. There was a case called Gobitis where the Supreme Court was asked whether or not Jehovah Witness children who had conscientious objections to saluting the flag because they viewed that as a form of idolatry, could those children receive as some sort of an exemption and could they be protected based on both their free speech rights and their religious exercise rights, or, or could the government expel them from school? 
And the court in that case, in an opinion written by Justice Frankfurter, said, we can't give exemptions, and so we expel them. Because when there's a rule of law, we have to uphold the rule of law, and that's the way it is on, on both free speech and religious exercise grounds. That was a deeply unpopular decision. Uh, Professor Noah Feldman at Harvard has talked about how after that decision was authored, it was as though open season was declared on Jehovah Witnesses in our country, and there was a lot of persecution of, of that minority group. Just a few years later, in the Supreme Court's very famous case of Barnett, the court overruled itself and said, we got it wrong. We should have protected that uh, that group. We should have said that they had the right not, not to participate in this particular government practice, even if the other children generally were doing so. And that's still good law in the freedom of speech context. And that was also a guiding principle in the religious exercise context. Um, and, and both of those areas of law continued to develop. And we had clearer framework for strict scrutiny and for protecting rights and for carving out sometimes protections from otherwise generally applicable laws if they were really burdening someone's First Amendment rights until we got to Employment Division versus Smith. And in that case in 1990, it was a case written by Justice Scalia, he said he cited he to Gobitis, which is still bad law for freedom of speech, but is now resurrected in the religious exercise realm, which is sort of bizarre and a bit of a double standard. And Justice Scalia said, we can't give exemptions from generally applicable laws. If we do so, we'll be courting anarchy. And so in that case, in Employment Division versus Smith, there was a Native American plaintiff who was essentially requesting an exemption from laws regarding employment benefits so that he could uh, use peyote as part of his sacred religious practices. And Justice Scalia said that he was entitled to no protection uh, because he was seeking an exemption from a generally applicable law. And the court has later gone on to, to clarify that Smith still does mean that the government can't target or discriminate against religious groups. But it's important to keep in mind that we have very different protection under freedom of speech protections. Even if a law is generally applicable, if a law burdens someone's free speech rights, we still give heightened scrutiny to, which means that the court looks really closely at what the government justifications are for why it is burdening someone's First Amendment rights. And what is really interesting about this line by Justice Alito in the, his Kennedy concurrence, first of all, is that it's joined by Justice Thomas, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Kavanaugh. And so we know that at least four justices are suggesting, or at least they have put out this invitation that there's some interest in, in revisiting their decision in Employment Division v. Smith. And it's also interesting that the language they're talking about drastically cutting back on protections under free exercise, I, I think is accurate. The, what the court did there was it, it carved back protections for free exercise in a way that we don't see that same sort of limited protection for other sorts of fundamental constitutional rights. And I think that the court is honing in on the disparity in protection that its jurisprudence right now offers to those important rights. Richard, uh, please give us your sense of the history and current status of Smith. What came before it? Uh, what did Justice Scalia hold in Smith? Why have both liberals and conservatives both praised it and criticized it, and uh, what's the significance of four justices suggesting they might be willing to overrule it? The, the basic holding in Smith is that, uh, is that when a law is, the technical terms are neutral and generally applicable, uh, 
which j- then uh, the fact that uh, they that the law happens to burden uh, people be- based on their faith uh, more heavily or at all is not something that's legally cog- constitutionally cognizable. Um, what that means is when the law doesn't single out any religion for favor or disfavor uh, and just happens to have some effects on people because uh, because of their beliefs um, that that the law uh, still applies the the sort of the easiest example that can sound like a caricature but isn't it sort of gets to the heart of things is we have laws against murder if you have a faith that uh, in which if you had a faith in which human sacrifice was a sacrament um, then um, then you wouldn't get to say well I get out from the murder law because I have a religious belief that I have to I have to engage in this religious practice but look when Smith was decided we at Americans United for separation of church and state immediately and roundly criticized it um, most 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 people in most groups uh, across the the religious and and civil rights and political spectrum did, and we were part of the coalition that worked to get a statutory fix passed in its wake, and that's what ended up producing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right now, we're working for passage of the Do No Harm Act, which restores RIFRA or would restore RIFRA to its original purpose and intent. That we're all still struggling with Smith is no surprise because it's a rule that does have harsh consequences. And whether you, as you said, Jeff, whether you're on the right or on the left, there's going to be some application of it that you don't like. Often that's actually a virtue of a legal rule. It's neutral. It's impartial. You, It's not one group is always the winner and one group is always the loser. But there are some, there are some problems here and it's not at all to say that we can't do, can't do better. Right now is an interesting time to consider doing that because we're living in a moment when the fundamental principles of religious liberty are being distorted dangerously. The language of religious liberty is being co-opted every day to defend discrimination. It goes like this. I shouldn't have to comply with the anti-discrimination laws when I'm performing my government job or running a publicly funded social service program or operating a shop or restaurant or a hotel open to the public. My religious beliefs give me a free pass to discriminate. To discriminate on the basis of religion or race or sex or sexual orientation uh, because uh, because I have particular beliefs and I should be able to um, to operate in my government job uh, in accordance to, with those beliefs. Uh, in, in 1968, in the Piggy Park case, the Supreme Court heard that very argument from a restaurant owner who was challenging a portion of the Federal Civil Rights Act that made it unlawful for restaurants to refuse to serve African Americans. The restaurant owner argued that the law was invalid because it contravenes the will of God. That was his language. Now, the Supreme Court said that that argument was patently frivolous, not because the religious restaurant owner's religious beliefs weren't genuine and not because he wasn't entitled to those beliefs, but because your religious beliefs don't give you a free pass to violate this at least this one category of very special laws, anti-discrimination laws. And why? Because your religious beliefs are meant to be a protection for you, but not the right to hurt other people by trying to force them or trying to use the law to force them to live in accordance with your beliefs. That's not what the free exercise of religion is. It's not what it is or has ever been. So, so in the possibility of revisiting what the free exercise clause means, um, it's important to remember that it's about the right to believe or not, 
to worship or not according to the dictates of your individual uh, conscience, rather, but that um, but that it is also the right of others to live in accordance with their religious beliefs and that their beliefs and their other fundamental rights um, can't be uh, can't be subjugated to your to your religion. You don't get to use the government to say the heck with their religious beliefs or their practices or their fundamental rights. Um, I get to impose the costs and harms of my belief on others. So whatever the court may do with the free exercise clause, that's the principle that has to be respected. Smith certainly does an imperfect job of it, and trying to figure out a better way is a is a useful endeavor, but it's got to be done with that fundamental understanding. And that's actually part of what Justice Scalia was, again, imperfectly, I think, wrestling with in coming to the decision that he did in Smith. Stephanie, lots to respond to here. Just to uh, review some of where we are in this completely fascinating and centrally important history. Um, before 1963, courts generally refused to grant uh, religious exemptions from generally applicable laws, although they carved them out by statute. From 1963 to 1990, we had cases called Sherbert and Yoder, which generally said yes and presumptively granted religious exemptions, although the government could deny them if there was a compelling interest. And then in 1990, this really important Smith case we're talking about returned to the pre-1963 rule essentially overruled Sherbert and Yoder and um, said that the Free Exercise Clause did not mandate the exemptions, and now we're back to a world where Smith could be overturned. Um, I got that summary from Eugene Bollock's excellent uh, piece uh, in the Bollock Conspiracy, Will the Court Read the Free Exercise Clause as Often Mandating Religious Exemptions from Generally Applicable Laws? So, Stephanie, in, in the many things that uh, you have to respond to, you know, I'd ask you among them to Focus in on this question. If Justice Alito and five justices altogether overturn Smith, what rule would they embrace and what would the consequences of that be? Yeah, that's a really great question. So and with the the point that you made about 1963 really being where we saw the beginning of, of this standard granting exemptions, I think that that's right. But I think you have to understand that historical data point in the context of a larger story about the Supreme Court's development of its strict scrutiny jurisprudence. And, and what strict scrutiny means is it was this is a test that the Supreme Court has developed for its modern constitutional jurisprudence as far as how it weighs competing interests when it is deciding whether or not we should uphold a constitutional right or not. And a lot of scholars describe 1963 as the year that strict scrutiny really in its modern form, arrived on the scene, not just for religious exercise, but also for other First Amendment free speech and associational rights. NAACP v. Button is another 1963 case where we see that happening. So, so the fact that we're not seeing a lot of religious exemptions before 1963 isn't shocking. We're, we're not seeing a lot of application of this sort of strict scrutiny analysis. Something else that's going on historically that I think is important is at the founding period and in the early jurisprudence of our country, what the court typically did when it had an unconstitutional statute is it would just strike it down in the word that lawyers use is facially. The court would just essentially say, this is a void statute. But after the New Deal and after we had a, a, our country shifted to try and preserve 
the rule of law more and to keep statutes in place where possible, what became more common as a constitutional remedy was for the court to say, we're going to keep this statute in place. We're not going to say that it's void, but we are going to say when it's applied in this way, it's it's problematic. So we see that same sort of exemption being offered in the free speech context, for example. We see the court saying um, this license plate law in this Wooly case is still a valid law generally applied to everybody else, but applied to this particular person where they feel like it's forcing them to speak a message they don't want to speak. We're going to say that application is invalid. Uh, and to Richard's point, there's also exemptions from anti-discrimination laws in the free speech or associational context where the court will say uh, in a 1990 case of Hurley uh, dealing with a, a, pari- a, a excuse me, at St. Patrick's Day Parade, the court said, um, even though anti-discrimination laws are generally valid, here, where the government was trying to force a private parade to allow in a gay rights group, that application was invalid. And so we're not going to allow that application of the law. And and that's what uh, I think we might see the court consider returning to is at least a similar sort of test that is being applied right now in the free speech context. And we're even if there's an incidental burden or harm to someone's religious rights, the same way in the free speech context, we would we would make the government provide strong justifications for doing that, even if it's uh, what we call intermediate scrutiny. We should at least provide that sort of protection in the religious context as well. And I agree with the hypo given earlier that if someone says my religion or my speech for that matter, uh, compel me to want to murder someone, that's not going to be a winning case. Even if we apply strict scrutiny, it's going to be really easy for the government to satisfy strict scrutiny because because what it means when we're saying that the government has to apply strict scrutiny is not that the First Amendment rights automatically win. It just means that the government doesn't get a blank check and the government has to prove that it has a good reason for doing what it's doing, which is really important for protection of minority rights that often are overlooked in the legislative process. And to the point about we can't we can't allow the protection of rights if they're going to harm somebody. Professors uh, Sunstein and Holmes have a great new book out. Uh, well, not brand new, but a newish book out called The Cost of Rights that talks about how every single constitutional right we have imposes harm and cost on other people. And so if we were not willing to countenance any sort of harm from any sort of protection of rights, we would have no rights. And you see this in in a lot of examples of cases where we protect the rights of religious minorities. For example, when we uh, protected the rights of a Muslim prisoner to be able to grow a beard, the government argued that was imposing costs and increasing risks of harm to, to other government employees and to other prison inmates. And and yet we protected that anyway, because the government uh, didn't have a strong enough reason that it couldn't try and avoid that harm by doing other things. There are cases where Sikh uh, temples have uh, been trying to establish just a, a place where they can worship and neighbors have complained and said, you're going to increase traffic and noise and that's a harm to us. And so we wouldn't we wouldn't protect Sikh minority groups if we just said, OK, that's a harm. So, so you don't get a religious right. And in the prison context, this will be the last example I give, um, the government has also argued we shouldn't have to accommodate Jews who want to have a kosher diet because that's an increased cost that takes away goods and benefits from other inmates. So the idea that we could just have a, a rule that you can have your constitutional rights as long as they 
don't inconvenience or harm or result in any sort of cost to anyone sounds deceptively simple and appealing. But what it means in practice is that we are completely eviscerating that constitutional right. Thank you for all of those really illuminating examples, for exploring the effects of strict scrutiny on religious exemptions, and also for the interesting recommendation of Sunstein and Holmes' cost of right books. Um, Richard, I'd like to ask you to hone in on this question you identified, which is sort of the most hotly contested religious liberty question of the day. If Smith were overturned, how would that change the court's approach to cases in which people are seeking religious exemptions from anti-discrimination laws? At the moment, most of those exemptions are brought under the federal statute called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because Smith says you're not entitled to one. But if the court overturned Smith and subjected these uh, claims to uh, strict scrutiny for the government to meet, um, would that make it easier for the baker who didn't want to bake the wedding cake or for the religiously motivated employer who didn't want to grant the contraception exemption to get an exemption from those generally applicable laws? And is that a good or bad thing? So it shouldn't make those claims easier and more successful, but that would, of course, depend on what the Supreme Court does. Um, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act was intended to restore pre-Smith, uh, free Smith, free exercise jurisprudence, um, but it is often asserted today in ways that go way, way, way beyond what free exercise jurisprudence ever did. Um, the 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 rule that Stephanie criticizes that that the free exercise uh, clause protects um, protects the rights to believe and worship and practice your faith, but does not give you a right to use your religion, to impose your religion on others or to use government to impose your religion on others, um, is the rule that comes out of pre-Smith uh, free exercise jurisprudence. And it's the rule that comes out in all the cases that, Jeff, you mentioned some of, Stefan, you mentioned some, uh, that are about ensuring that uh, I don't end up paying the price for your religious exercise. That that's that that is something that you make that choice for yourself, and you and you also foot the bill for it. That was the basic understanding that we have had since the beginning, from when uh, from when Madison drafted the First Amendment's religion clauses and also defended their precursor in the state of Virginia, the Jefferson's bill for establishing religious freedom. The idea was was. Is this? Um, it is. Uh, it is the government's job to stay out of matters of religion, not to interfere with them, not to uh, not to be used as a tool to press uh, one's face on another. So the idea of uh, for instance, the prison case that Stephanie mentioned, it's called Holt against Hobbes, uh, involving a Muslim prisoner who wanted to wear a beard. Um, the the prisoner's argument was that the inmate's argument was that uh, if I had a medical reason for wearing a beard, you would let me do it. Uh, and so why shouldn't my religious uh, reason uh, be uh, equally good? Uh, and um, and the government tried to say, well, there are all kinds of security risks that are involved in wearing a beard. But honestly, they weren't plausible. We filed a brief in the Supreme Court in support of that inmate um, and explained that the court properly looks at uh, whether 
whether third parties are really burdened and harmed and put at risk by the imposition of uh, of somebody else's religion on them or not. And if not, as in that case, then there's there isn't a good argument uh, against giving a religious accommodation. That's what that's what the 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 Religious Freedom Restoration Act was designed to do. But it's but it's uh, t- the attempts to use it are so much broader. So to actually to get back to your specific question, Jeff, if the Supreme Court uh, in fact restores something like pre-Smith jurisprudence, uh, it shouldn't make those claims, claims like uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop's claim any better because at base what Masterpiece is saying is uh, is the laws against uh, against discrimination on the basis of race and sex and sexual orientation uh, and disability shouldn't apply to me because I don't want them to because I have a religious motivation for not wanting to follow them. And that's never been what free exercise is about. It's meant to be a, a, sh- a shield to protect my religious practice uh, from the government, not a sword to impose it on others. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this completely fascinating discussion, which has convinced me and I'm sure all of you, dear We the People listeners, how important it is that we understand these cases and uh, follow the Supreme Court's exploration of them. So the question for closing argument is the obvious one. Should the Smith case be overturned? Uh, is it If it is overturned, how big a deal would that be and why should our listeners care about it? And the first uh, closing argument is to Stephanie. Thanks, Jeff. And, and thanks, Richard, for this great conversation. I, I think that Smith was wrongly decided. And I think that Smith makes our jurisprudence for religious exercise an anomaly and not in a good way, where we're essentially treating religious protections as the redheaded stepchild of all of the First Amendment rights. And, and that makes no sense to me. It's not correct to say that the founders didn't anticipate that sometimes protecting religion would result in costs. There are some really important historical examples of that. One of the most prominent is the example of Quakers who were exempted from the draft at the time of the founding. And that exemption resulted in very real costs for other folks who then had to take their place and go to war. Our founders uh, still thought that that was worthwhile because the conscience rights of the Quakers meant that they they couldn't comply. They couldn't do something that was going to violate their conscience. They they would rather go to jail. And what uh, what we understood historically was that forcing people to violate their conscience is a really high cost to society that often isn't that effective and won't usually be very helpful for the government accomplishing its goals. And there's just better ways for us to live in a pluralistic society where people have different deeply held beliefs, sometimes and often on controversial issues. And the answer is not to let the government pick the one right answer and then punish the minority view. The answer is to have a framework that allows us to have a plurality of voices, a plurality of beliefs. And that's what we do in the context of other First Amendment rights. That's what we do even in the context of anti-discrimination issues. We, We have seen how the court has dealt with the, the exact rule of what it would look like if Smith was overruled in the anti-discrimination context with the example of how the Supreme Court has dealt with that question when sometimes people have asked for protections from anti-discrimination laws for their speech concerns. One case that I mentioned was the 
the parade case. There's another case dealing with Boy Scouts, and there's another case dealing with the JCs. And what we see from those cases is that sometimes the person with the First Amendment claim wins, and sometimes they don't. The government looks at what the how grave the harm is going to be to the individual. Uh, that the anti-discrimination laws were meant to protect. If there's a monopoly, if there's another way that that individual can get those services, and um, if they're and how broad the claim is going to impact them. So the the court has a workable way, I think, for balancing very important competing interests. Um, and the the thing that I think is really valuable about a rule that allows us to balance those interests again is that it's not saying that religion is always going to win. It just means that especially when we have minority religious beliefs like other pre-Smith cases uh, in dealing Amish, who also had costs that were, that would have impacted third parties, including children who the government argued should have been able to go receive education, uh, which would have run contrary to the religious beliefs of the parents in that case. So when we have religious beliefs like minorities of uh, Amish groups or Sikhs in the military or Muslim prisoners or, or Jewish groups, uh, we we stamp out those religious beliefs if the rule is just, if it's a generally applicable law, then your beliefs don't matter. And I don't think that's the way to run a pluralistic nation like ours. Uh, Richard, the last uh, word is to you. And this question is the same. Should the Smith case be overturned? If it were overturned, how big a deal would that be? And why should our We the People listeners care about this question? Smith is a harsh rule. Accommodating religious belief is immensely important, and it's particularly important actually for some of the reasons that Stephanie said at the very end, that um, that when you leave questions to the uh, to up to majority rule, religious minorities are the ones who lose out. Um, but accommodating religion, uh, has to be done in a way that doesn't roughshod, ride roughshod over other people's religion uh, or other fundamental rights. Um, so revisiting Smith is 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 not at all a bad idea, but doing it in the right way is incredibly important. And I fear that the the conversation that goes on so much of the time right now and in so many cases is taking an extreme view that doesn't end up actually respecting the religious freedom of everyone, uh, because when uh, when people get to uh, impose their impose their religion and use government to impose their religion on others, when they get to discriminate in the name of religion, uh, that that uh, that that is not a recipe for um uh, the happy pluralism that I think Stephanie wants to present it as, that's the recipe for the civil strife, uh, the religiously based uh, animus, and the violence that uh, has historically so marked uh, and been unfortunate product of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism is a tremendously valuable, important thing. Um, but it, but the way to respect it is to recognize that we all have a stake in it. We all have fundamental rights and interests, and that all our beliefs matter. So 
uh, that necessarily means that there are there is a conditioning element on assertions that I get to impose my religion on you. The Establishment Clause provide the, provides those. We have two religion clauses in the Constitution and two religion clauses that work in tandem throughout the whole run of Supreme Court decisions and wrestling with all the problems of the day because of the fact that government uh, truly respecting the religious freedom of everyone means taking a position that's neutral with respect to religion and neutral m neutral among uh, religious denominations and faiths. So any uh, a any revisiting of the free speech, uh, excuse me, of the free exercise clause needs to be done with that concern in mind, not because the free exercise clause is the stepchild of the Bill of Rights, uh, but because the way that we respect religious freedom recognizes uh, that there are there are many and competing interests and views, and we have to find a way to live together in relative harmony, respecting each other's beliefs and respecting each other's differences. And that doesn't happen when some get to use the tools of government to impose their faith on others. That's what's really at stake here, and that's what has to be looked at uh, in any attempt to rethink uh, how to deal with free exercise and establishment clause issues. Thank you so much, Richard Katsky and Stephanie Barclay, for spreading so much light on this crucially important question of the future of the Free Exercise Clause and the Free Speech Clause and the Establishment Clause and the nature of religious exemptions. James Madison and the other framers believed that freedom of conscience was the quintessential unalienable right coming from God or nature and not from government because our beliefs about the nature of the eternal are the product of our reason. And reason cannot be coerced by government because it defines who we are as human beings. For contributing to the spread of reason, Richard, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team at the National Constitution Center. Dear We the People listeners, your homework, if you choose to accept it, for this rich discussion of the future of the Free Exercise Clause, among others, is to read the Interactive Constitution's explainers about the Free Exercise Clause. Uh, the joint explainer is written by Michael McConnell and Frederick Geddix, and then they have their separate statements. And read them, and if you find yourself more persuaded by McConnell or Geddix's interpretation, email me to let me know why. And please rate, review, and subscribe to We The People on Apple Podcasts or recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who may enjoy learning from all of this constitutional light. And remember, dear We The People listeners, when you wake and when you sleep, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. It's so important that we have these opportunities to inspire people around the country like you to take the time to educate yourself about the Constitution, and we can only do that with the engagement, support, and passion of people like you. So therefore, go to the site, sign up to become a member, and show your commitment to our joint project of lifelong learning. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate to learn more. We tried to make it easier instead of forward slash members. You can visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate to learn more. And thank you in advance for the donation of your time.
time, treasure, talent, and most of all, passion for lifelong learning. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.